Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi guys, today we're speaking with Andrea Gardner. This woman has done it all. She began her career as a social worker, then became a world-class climber, then a professional skier, then a trading floor maven, all before starting her own fund as a venture capitalist. Andrea is going to share her illuminating, inspiring, and sometimes hilarious story, as well as her incredibly useful advice for female founders starting businesses or seeking funding. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Andrea, how are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you on the show. We met Andrea in a really funny way. So we needed a location um, for our podcast shoot. And <laughs> her house was the place, her beautiful apartment. <laughs> <laughs> that was an unusual place to meet. <laughs> yes, but it was lovely. And so we were so inspired by our short conversation that we asked her to be on the podcast and she generously accepted. <laughs> So we've got her here today in the studio with us. So we want to know all about you. So <laughs> literally everything. So, you know, tell us about where you're from, uh, you know, as much as you want to share about how you grew up and how you became the woman you are today. Oh, such a big question. Um, <laughs> well, I grew up in country Victoria, mm-hmm. uh, went to um, an all-girls Catholic school. Nobody in my family had ever been to university. I didn't even know the names of universities, mm-hmm. but I just wow. knew I didn't want to I didn't want to see the country town as being that's it for the rest of my life. Right. And I thought, university, that's the way to get out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so I went to university and um, and interestingly, my father followed me through. He did. He he followed me through university a year behind me the whole wow. way, which was kind of fun. Really? So you inspired him to go to university. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> did you do the same course? No, no. <laughs> no. What did you study? So I. It was funny. I start. I got into law, and I start. And I started law, and I started um, uh, literature. Literature. English literature huh. degree, mm-hmm. two different universities. And um, and then I thought, you know what, because I didn't really know which one I wanted to do. And then I thought, ah, law, probably doing that for the wrong reasons. Right. You know, maybe I'm after sort of financial security and status rather than <laughs> doing right. something I really yes, want to yes. do. Yeah. So I dumped it and um, I ended up doing behavioural science and psychology and then a postgraduate degree in social work. Oh. And, and then I spent a few years kind of restructuring some child protection services in rural Australia, uh-huh. uh, wow. which was actually quite rewarding because one of the things I'm, I feel that is one of my strengths is sort of more structural type of work. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I was able to have um, quite a big impact and that was really satisfying. Yeah. And around the same time, I got into uh, climbing and... Um, Eventually, I got really ambitious with my climbing and decided that, you know, I wanted to go out there and be one of the best climbers in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Uh, So to do that, like anything, you've got to do it more than full time. So I I left work and... um, Lived in my tent at Yosemite in California. Really? Bagging all those big walls. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> every, time, every time I talk to you, it's like, wow, you did that too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so did you climb El Capitan? I certainly did. Cool. Oh, my God. Well, it was really that actually El, El Capitan was the really big motivation for me leaving work because I had a huge poster of El Cap, um, one Ansel Adams photograph in my on my office wall. Mm. And uh, and actually what had happened, my boyfriend and I at the time were going on a Himalayan expedition and, <laughs> and, um, and I left actually to do that. Uh-huh. And before that we were uh, doing some climbing at Easter in um, Manari in the Flinders Ranges in South and Australia. How old are you? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I went there and 
my I went there with the guy and we turned up. We couldn't find he couldn't find his fiance and I couldn't ty- find my boyfriend. Oh. And the next morning we found them together. And I'm like, oh no, I've left work to, to oh, wow. do this Himalayan Wait, expedition. You found them to get like together together. Yes. Oh my oh, god. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I was wow. like, oh no, I've left work to go on this Himalayan expedition <laughs> with him and he's leading the expedition. I can't go now. What am I going to do? Oh my and I, God. And I was a bit sort of like, holy hell, I was, you know, a bit broadsided. And, um, <laughs> oh, and, and you, I said to this guy who's a really, really good climber, what am I going to do now? And he just looked at me and he said, well, you've had that poster up on your office wall for year, you know, a year now. Yeah. You've got this dream to climb El Cap. Why don't you go and do that? And I went, oh, on my own? Are you serious? <laughs> oh. And he just looked at me and he said, just be a big girl and go, you know. <laughs> I went, oh. Wow. <laughs> so I went and I felt very brave because I was quite scared of, um, you know, travelling on my own and doing all that stuff. And and I did what he advised, you know. I test, test ran quite a few guys that I found uh, in the, you know, climbers in the uh, campground on yeah. easier routes, you know, until I found someone that I felt comfortable tackling something you know, like our cat with. And wow. uh, so did that. Wow. So I spent seven and a half months there bagging all those big walls really? and wow. climbing. <laughs> we went to Boulder. It's a hell of a way to get over a breakup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't heartbreaking, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> Which, like, well, he's not the person I thought he was. Oh, Move on. exactly. Next. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, so I, I climbed at uh, Yosemite and then um, we went to Boulder and I think we did, did a little bit of climbing down in Mexico and mm. uh, Joshua Tree, the album was out around then too, so it was really cool. We were climbing Joshua Tree. It was stinking hot. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, that's right, and then we went over to Europe and climbed the Matterhorn and a few things like that and um, and came back uh, and, a you know, a girl that I'd met climbing said, oh, why don't you come to Aspen and ski, you know, at the end of the season. And I said, oh, probably because I can't ski. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, oh, it's Ego Snow and Aspen. It's the easiest place to learn to ski in the world. So I went to Aspen with her and mm. ended up, um, you know, throwing ropes up on uh, frozen waterfalls to take, you know, the Swedish ski bums climbing so that then they would teach me to ski. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> but they thought it was a pretty cool deal, you know, getting climb a frozen waterfall. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and that was pretty good fun. And, uh, yeah, and then I started skiing. God, I'm going on about climbing, aren't no, I? No, no. <laughs> and then what did you do? <laughs> uh, I think then the next season I skied in uh, Chamonix mm-hmm. and f- I got into a lot of ski mountaineering there and ski at Strem. Really, really, really felt like I was living then. I absolutely loved all that. So I spent the next five years, I think, just skiing about nine months of the year. This sort of had the had my base at the beginning of the year in Aspen and uh, beginning of the winter in Aspen and the, towards the end of the winter over in Europe. Wow. And was, did some racing, went back to Australia, did some racing there. And, yeah, it was good fun. Oh, my gosh. So, like, basically no office work, no finance, nothing. Well, I did have to get quite creative. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So when I was climbing at Yosemite and I was quickly running out of money, and Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I did live on the smell of an oily rag in my tent and I really didn't spend much money, but still you can't. Yeah, you can't you, you not earn eat. money for yeah. it. Yeah, eventually you got to pay for your taco type of thing. Yeah. Um. So I actually went up to uh, Oregon. I'd heard about these guys that were had invented a new climbing tool in their uh, um in their garage. Yeah. And I went up and had a look, and I maxed out my credit card, bought every single bit bit of stock that I could. Yeah. And I took it back to Yosemite and I climbed El Cap and I came back down and there's all these guys from all around the world having gone there to realise their dream to uh, climb El Cap. And I just sort of, you know, would whip out this little climbing tool and say, oh, the only reason I was able to do this was because of this little beauty. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Saleswoman. Oh, you know what? It just sort of leveraged that gender bias, didn't it? You know, She's crafty, yeah. this one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and sold out in literally about, oh, I can't remember, it was a few days or 
week or something, and that yeah. kept me going for about a year. What? And then <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say like a month. <laughs> no, well, as I said, I didn't spend much money. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then with the skiing, uh, I painted a lot of fabric and got my mum to sew sew them up into these headbands, and I was doing um, sort of doing some competitions with uh, moguls and aerials mm. and there were a du- it was a dual competition in Aspen every Friday. I used to do a f- few different ones in Europe and in France but this particular one was really good because you would do the race down um, in front of the kind of lunchtime crowds and then the, the big jumps were at the end for them to watch. Yeah. And I just wore them. I was the only woman competing against mm. all these guys. They were very nice to me, I have to say, because I'm not sure if I was a bloke, I honestly would have ever qualified, but still. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they, I got them to wear the headbands and then I would go around after the event and with them over my arms and just sell them. <laughs> cool. So I sort of created a, uh, created a, a Something that was trend tre- created a trend, I suppose, and yeah, and so I. You s- had merch. <laughs> <laughs> you did. That's really funny. So it was sort of. I think I had some little entrepreneurial bugs inside me somewhere. Yeah. And then, anyway, much later on, um, I uh, got a scholarship and went. I, you know, after five years of being, you know, struggling with um, very patchy sponsorships and things like that. And financially, I decided to um, accept a scholarship and went to start and studied law in London. Uh-huh. Um, and an, interestingly about, oh, must be three months into studying law there, I was offered a really generous, substantial sponsorship for snowboard racing. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. wow. <laughs> anyway, but I'd committed, so um, I stayed there and yeah. studied law. And I and what made Scot- you go back to law after you said that you started studying it the, the first time, but then decided against it? That's a good question. Um, I think I think I I felt like the commercial side of the world and the way it operated was something I knew zero about, absolutely nothing, and yeah. I at some level understood that it had a huge impact on everything and everyone, mm. in particular poverty. Yeah. And I just had a desperate need to kind of understand the more commercial world. And probably if that was my objective, law might not have been the best choice, but <laughs> it was the best I knew because I was so um, uh, unfamiliar with the whole commercial side of the world. Right. And and that was good. Uh, and, and so I ended up, I probably would have been better off doing human rights law, but you wouldn't have got a scholarship like the one I got <laughs> yeah. to do that. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I ended up doing um, uh, global, you know, finance, global debt capital markets was what I ended up doing. Gotcha. And uh, I worked in private practice for a, a few years and four years, I think. And then I in London? Yes, in London. Mm-hmm. And then I worked for Lehman Brothers um, on oh. their, their fixed income syndicate desk. So I was on the trading floor there. And that was fun. I quite enjoyed the cerebral challenge of all the, all the sort of cross-border structuring. And So did you yell a lot during that time? No, no. <laughs> you see the like movie, like Wolf of Wall Street and stuff and yeah. like trading floor, everybody's just like yelling and papers are flying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it was actually a quiet environment. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Yeah. Learn no. something. Were there and many women doing that as well at the time? To be honest, the no. There were um the most of the women were uh you know, back office people. Right. You know, doing more administrative stuff. There were there were very few women that were actual uh bankers. Do you think that being part of like the boys club skiing helped you when you got to um the finance world? Oh, absolutely. Um I think, I think because I'd just been surrounded with men for so long, right? It, it didn't feel any different, didn't right? So yeah, I think so. I'd, and I didn't think of myself as any different. So really, yeah. yeah. Huh. So I think, yeah, I think that was gave you the confidence or something to just. I don't know. I suppose the the I was confident with men in a way. I just yeah. kind of 
I don't know. I suppose you go from climbing or skiing or, or stuff like that and they were interested in doing the same things you were doing. So the gender issue wasn't really an issue. It was just sort yeah. of something on the side. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot with women who, you know, we talk a lot about getting the confidence to be the only woman at the table sometimes and, you know, kind of power through that. But if you come from an environment where you're used to being around men because you're coming from like a sporting area or something like that, it's, it makes a lot more sense that it would feel a little bit more natural to have that confidence. Yeah. You know, thinking about it, um, I do remember an incident and it was a really interesting one just uh, from a psychological point, my own mm-hmm. psychological point of view, um, climbing something with a guy and at, at one level knowing that he wasn't going to be able to follow it and that really rattling my resolve to lead it successfully because I didn't want to, you know, hurt his ego or something. Huh. <laughs> it's a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah. I have a very vivid memory of it. <laughs> yeah. and, um, <laughs> and I remember being on the crux of this climb and having this sort of weird mental battle with myself. Just get on with it. This is your route. You're leading it, you know. Right. This is not about he looking after his ego, yeah. and the, the and and to be fair, this guy was not an you know big ego guy. He was a great guy, you know, mm. he, but I just knew it would bother him. Yeah, because I hadn't been climbing for that long, and he'd been climbing for a long time. Yeah, because culturally, you felt responsible for you know not harming his ego or something yeah. somewhere. <laughs> like it just you know it's it's weird how like our cultural upbringing kind of just. It pops out and then you're like, oh, wait, why am I worried about that? Yeah. yeah. Isn't it, it a silly something... thing to do, though, for a woman to be worried about propping up a bloke's ego? Yeah. It's just right. silly, isn't it? It's interesting. I mean, it's and I think we do it and, and don't even realize that we're doing it in day-to-day life mm. a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of that stuff is really very buried deep down. It's very subconscious. And So when you were working at Lehman Brothers, I'm assuming this is before 2008. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, what was your kind of plan at that point? Did you think that you ever wanted to like start out on your own or what, what was your thinking? No, I think years before, even when I was a social worker, I used to sort of dream about having my own business type of thing and never really did, did anything about it. It was all a bit scary mm-hmm. and I didn't know anything about business um, or know anybody that did either. And then I think when I was at Lehman, I was really buried in a pretty intense work environment where I worked long and hard hours. And there's not a lot of capacity or, or spare headspace to even to think about what you're doing and why and whether this is what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I was on a, on a bit of a spinning wheel in some ways. Um, and actually, my husband rescued me from that, to be honest, because I met him and he lived in Scotland. Yeah. And just made me think about what I really wanted and I, yeah. I think I realised that I, it wasn't important enough for me to just invest my whole life into being an investment banker and just, you know, getting a bigger and better car and a bigger and better house type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So um, much to the kind of shock and horror of my friends, I ended up moving to Scotland and he was a lot younger than I am and he was... Yeah, he wasn't earning very much money at all. <laughs> and people are like, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I took like, um, I think it was a two-thirds pay cut and yeah. my bonuses had been, you know, well over 100% and that was in, not including those bonuses that I wasn't oh, going to wow. get anymore. Oh, wow. And uh, I think everyone thought I was mad. And oh, the things you do for love, eh? Yeah, but it was a good, <laughs> it was a good you know, I did it with eyes wide open and yeah. um, it was a good decision. Yeah, yeah. You know, had, Here you are, like all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you've got to just back yourself, don't you? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I love that. Sometimes you've got to back yourself. That is absolutely true. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, we spent five very happy years in uh, Edinburgh. Yep. And the climate was worse, 
in London. <laughs> it was even yeah. worse because London used to really upset me. I'd, you know, that plane would come down on Friday nights and pierce this shroud of grey and gloom <laughs> oh. and my heart would sink in the amount of times that I would sort of feel these, feel these tears welling going, Andrea, you've just got to go back home. You've yeah. got to go home. It's a beautiful Australia where you grew up. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so hard. Yeah, back to where the sun shines and yeah. puts a smile on your face. Yeah. And, um, and at that time, you know, London was pretty grubby and there was a lot of poverty. And What years you know, would you say this was that you were working? The 90s. The 90s. So the sort of early 90s. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then you spent the late 90s in Scotland. Yep. Okay. And then we had, we married and had a couple of kids. Well, had one child. Uh-huh. And as the younger one says, made another one, but didn't actually produce him until we got here. Oh, okay. <laughs> you moved back to Australia. <laughs> so, so you moved back with the second yeah. one. So we moved back in 2000. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, to Victoria or? To no, Sydney? to Sydney. Yeah. Because I do remember Ian saying, oh, let's move to, because I g- did give him five years too. I said, look, I really need yeah. to move back to Australia. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, he was a uh, new entrepreneur at the time and very ambitious and very excited about what he was doing. Yeah. Um, so I said that I would move there and support him. But, in you know, he had five years and we'll, I was going back to Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank goodness, about four and a half years later, he sort of said, oh, how about we move to Sydney? And I had to really keep my mouth shut and sort of go, um, what about Melbourne where I have friends and family? <laughs> and I didn't say that because I just thought it felt I was so relieved that he was uh, prepared to, you know, honour his promise yeah. Yeah, and yeah. leave his family and friends that he was very close to. Yeah. So I kind of thought I should be just grateful it would be Sydney and not Melbourne. But um, I think Sydney offers a great lifestyle. It's been 21, 22 today and it's been about a lot less than that in Melbourne. So, so you guys moved to Sydney with the two kiddos. Well, we moved with the one. Oh, with the one, one and one on the way. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So did you take a job when you first came here or did you take some time for yourself? Or well, what? it was interesting. Um, by that time I was working for the International Division of the Bank of Scotland uh-huh. mm-hmm. and they offered to transfer me here but only full time and I was seven months pregnant with a one and a bit year old. Wow. So <laughs> um, I thought, maybe not. I don't think I can do this full time. Yeah. So I was just a very full time mum when I first got here. I didn't think I'd ever end up as a full time mum, but I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a little stint teaching social work at um, the Australian Catholic Uni for a year. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just did a few bits and pieces. The kids were a bit you know, one of them, um, you know, was diagnosed with uh, ADD and that took quite a bit of just learning to manage that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then I realised that, you know, that's all very genetic and that it, there was no, Ian had no signs of ADD, must have come from mum. <laughs> <laughs> and and tried. Oh, wait, you mean the woman who travelled all over the world and then was a yeah, yeah. climber and then a skier and yeah, then yeah, an yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. And then, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I might try a bit of this medication stuff. I don't yeah. want him having it without me knowing. And I'm like, holy hell. <laughs> How the hell have I ever done anything in my life without this stuff? Yeah, really? Yeah, it was really quite um, something. It's, so how did it make you feel? I could f- just focus and concentrate. That's you know, that's that's the, that was the difference. Wow. Um, and I still use it, but I only use it if I actually have to do something quite cerebral. Yeah. Like, I, you know, and it's the same with my kids as well. Like, we don't need it for anything right. other than if you have to really focus hard on something. Right. A um, kind of medication in moderation. Yeah. You know, we're lucky. It's sort of not, um, it's not a seven-day-a-week thing or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you still have to manage it. So how did you get back into Was this the point when you decided that you wanted to start your own thing or did you go back to work for a bit? No, well, Ian, when my husband Ian came here, he started a company called Innovation Bay. Mm. He, he was an entrepreneur and he wanted to learn. So he started Innovation Bay to provide networking and educational opportunities for entrepreneurs like himself. Uh-huh. So the format was usually him interviewing some highly successful entrepreneur to try and, you know, learn from their pearls of wisdom. 
Mm-hmm. And um, oh, I can't remember how many years later that, you know, I think he was probably wanting to raise funding. So he started pitch events, added pitch events to it. And by that time, I think Innovation Bay was in Melbourne and uh, Adelaide and Perth, Sydney, and now it's in Brisbane, I think. Um, and the, the, the broad format hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go along to these pitch events. It was just interesting. You know, mm-hmm. it's awesome to see these innovative founders trying to change the world for the better in some way is pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. And uh, and uh, over the years you would recognise the commonalities in those that did well. Yeah. yeah. And it was a bit frustrating. We didn't really have any money to invest. And then one came up and it was led by a fabulous female founder called uh, Vanessa Wilson and it was called Storageuse and it was – they took – to market the first deduplication software for the cloud. So it was quite deep tech, but it had a huge commercial um, value proposition in that it was able to have the capacity to save, uh, you know, hundreds of millions in data storage costs. And we thought, oh, this is such a no-brainer. So sort of Ian basically spent a day on the phone and we had our allocation in the round oversubscribed in a day. And we realised that back then, I suppose this was about six years ago, when our um, sort of angel investing community was still fairly nascent and inexperienced, Mm. um, that there was – people wanted to invest in startups, but it was a very high-risk asset. Right. And it's a little bit scary. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of a lack of leadership. Mm. So I started uh, Julix Ventures to provide a way for people to invest in startups with more confidence. So, right. you know, highly curated deals, um, you know, structured with sensible terms, hopefully balancing, you know, the uh, founders, you know, incentive, making sure the founders are fully incentivized and that um, balancing that with investor protections. Yep. So that was about five or six, maybe five and a half years ago now. Okay. And uh, I think since then we've done, I think we've deployed about nearly 7 million into uh, 18 startups over over 24 investments, I think. Wow. So we've actually done four deals this month, so I was just trying to add the four into the (laughs) (laughs) one. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, it is good. It's very, been very exciting, actually. So how does it actually work with Gelix Ventures? Is it, is it that you have a connection with high net worth individuals? So how, how it works, it's, it, look, at first I was looking at um, whether we would become an equity crowdfunding business, but mm. I felt deeply uncomfortable with offering a, a very, very high risk asset as an investment opportunity to relatively unsophisticated retail investors. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that I know that's an overgeneralization. Lots of them won't be that unsophisticated, but mm. in general. And I felt very uncomfortable with that. So I just stuck. I didn't do go down that route. Um, I instead sort of built my own model, which was basically leading syndicated investments and so I would source the deal, structure it, and agree the terms, and then I offer that the opportunity to co-invest with me on the same terms to our registered investors, all of whom are sophisticated investors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and then we charge them a fee that's structured. It's heavily performance weighted, similar to a venture capital fund. Um, the fees aren't quite as high across the board. Uh, initially that was just to reflect the fact that I didn't have much of a track record back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've been busily building that track record. And that, uh, interestingly, the storage use investment, we returned 10x to all our investors in three and a half years on that when it was acquired by a NASDAQ-listed company called Pure Storage. Wow. So that was a nice success story. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. And great to see, you know, a female co-founder yeah. Knocking it out of the park. Love right. That. Love that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so we're, we've had a pretty exciting time over the last month. At You know, when the COVID crisis hit um, in March, we just started fundraising because we're raising a fund at the moment. And we'd spent about a month in the whole month of February, pretty intensely fundraising. And I, I was really anxious about pitching 
because, <laughs> like, you know, like every founder, mm. if it's, you feel like you're sort of putting your, your heart in your hands and then offering it out to people and hoping like heck they're going to stroke it lovingly and appreciatively <laughs> <laughs> and feeling very vulnerable because what if they don't like it? Um, but it was very encouraging and um, the responses from the people we pitched to were, were f- fabulous. Uh, it was really, really encouraging. I got to the point I really enjoyed it. Um, and then the pandemic hit and we sort of, I think like a lot of people ahead was in a bit of a spin. We mm. re- changed our focus to focusing on working with our founders to, you know, hope, you know, help them navigate um, their way through the crisis as best they could, you know, not just um, sort of paying attention to runway and, and, you know, cutting costs to try and stretch out that runway, yeah. but also to try and leverage, op- opportun- you know, identify and leverage opportunities and, you know, a lot of our founders are really inexperienced founders because mm. we've invested in some pretty young and inexperienced founders very early on. And I am blown away with just just how well they've done and how well they've managed it. They're just awesome people. And it just goes to show that how important it is to invest in the right founders and that the founders are so much more important than what they're doing, you know. Really? Yeah. Absolutely. Are all of the businesses you invest in, all of the startups, local or are they abroad as well? All in Australia and some in New Zealand. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So all in the Asia Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, almost exclusively Australia except for a couple in New Zealand because we have good deal flow in New Zealand as well. And there is two reasons for that. One, our deal flow is in principally in Australia and Mm -hmm. some in New Zealand Mm -hmm. um, because we get about, uh, I'd say, about a thousand applications for funding a year fr- through Innovation Bay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things Innovation Bay does each year is run a, um, a venture capital conference in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of good pitch events. And, um, yeah, they have, a, they have a great startup uh, community over there. And so there's some really good, um, unta- fairly untapped opportunities for investment over there because prior to Blackbird and prior to the last couple of years, there really wasn't even any real venture capital funds there. Mm-hmm. Partly a deal flow and partly because we can add value, uh, whereas we can't really, you know, to a company that might be in Vietnam or something. Um, but the other thing is that... Uh, it sort of goes to the almost the higher purpose. It sounds a bit sanctimonious, but <laughs> the high, you know, one of the reasons I, I do this partly because I absolutely love backing these amazing founders that are trying to make the world better in some way. Right. And, you know, that's really exciting and it's a great privilege. Yes. But they're also the people that are creating all the jobs in Australia. Right. And I think in the, the Australian Investment Council's report, uh, the one before last, I think they said something like 90% of new jobs in Australia were created by startups less than two years old. Wow. So that is a jaw-dropping stat. Yeah. That is insane. I think it's a jaw-dropping stat. I can't believe that that didn't make headlines across the country, but still. And I suppose I feel that... Um, getting behind the innovation and startup sector in Australia is a critical economic imperative for the future of our country and our kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a big part of it too. So we have, I'm just going to put a couple um, factoids in there for people who are listening because we do have people who listen, a lot of listeners from America. So if you compare the two countries, Australia's got, what, about 24 million people Mm -hmm. now? Yeah. So I think America's at like 320 million. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something like that. So it's a much smaller population. However, Sydney itself has, you know, six and a half or I don't know. We should get, I should have Googled it. Yeah. Yeah, This is truly the startup hub of Australia. Would you say that's correct? Yes, but... It feels like it. Yeah, No, I think that's <laughs> right. right. But we have some pretty vibrant pockets um, in Brisbane. Uh, you know, the, the startup precinct and some of the stuff that's happening with Adelaide University is mm. pretty happening as well. Interesting. And uh, Melbourne. I mean, I've been... Yeah. Just, you know, Melbourne Uni has an accelerator. They've got the New York Butter Factory, the Stone and Chalk. I mean, South Australia has actually got a really interesting um, entrepreneur visa scheme. Yes, really. Um, yeah, it's um, if you come with like an innovative idea, you can huh. get an entrepreneur visa in South Australia. I think 
Absolutely. more easily than than elsewhere. Huh. Yeah, mm. it is quite hard to get a visa to Australia these days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a, that's a bit sad because I think you know we can you know we need we need to bring it, we need to be able to, to attract that kind Talent. of entrepreneurial expertise because yeah. we are building um, on a, a base of on, entrepreneurial expertise in Australia, yeah. and we now have really successful entrepreneurs like you know Mike Conner, Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar and mm. Mel and stuff from Canberra, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have the depth and the volume, mm-hmm. even pro rata, that uh, the US and a lot of other countries have. So I think it, it would be better if it was easier to, to uh, import yeah. some of this expertise. Mm, yeah. The interesting thing to me, um, just living in this, you know, because I've only lived in this country for the past two years, right? But some of the things that make America a really beautiful country um, as far as the people and startup culture and starting a business and the kind of the spirit that you get there, we have here as well. Um, and a lot of it is immigration, right? Yeah. So like oh, yeah. we were two countries built on immigration and the diversity of thought and that spirit of, oh, I'm going to remake my life in this new place. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I think you can't even measure that, right? Yeah. It's just, absolutely, it fuels so much. Couldn't agree more with you. So, okay. So we have women, uh, female founders all over the world listening to this, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> or would-be female founders. And they are wondering, okay, what can Andrea tell me to help me on my journey, on my next step? So could you share some insights and tips on what makes a good pitch, where they should begin, how they should talk to people like you who are looking for the next big thing? So I think one of the things that I would like to say before I launch into some of those tips is a person, a deep personal learning for me mm. um, is about just being brave enough to be really true to yourself right, and honest with yourself. So one of the things that um, has always been a really, really, really important value for me is integrity right. and doing mm-hmm. the right thing. Yep. Even if it hurts you, you just have to do the right thing. Right. Um, and I've never made such a big deal of it, but what I've found is that something that's really core to me has been, it's probably been the thing that's helped me the most in building this business because founders talk to each other right? and investors talk to each other yeah. and they're the sort of sides of my marketplace or my customers really. Um, and and that trust is really, really really, it's really valuable. Right. I didn't think, I suppose part of me just didn't really appreciate how valuable it was to other people. Right. So being true to yourself. Um, another thing uh, that is something that I'm about to, you know, change on my uh, website and my marketing materials is that one of the things that's really important to me is, um, you know, I have no interest in in, uh, investing if if it could do harm, like supporting gambling or something like that. Mm but also, but more than that, I'd much prefer to invest in something that's going to have a positive impact in some way. Right. And um, and I, I think I, you know I'm actually going to be much more explicit about stuff like that from now on because it you you end up attracting the the sort of investors and founders that you want to attract. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's almost a branding thing, isn't it? It's just being working out what your soul is. I know soul sounds a bit of a weird word to no, use, but no. it is really. I think it's what's your purpose? Like what do you actually care about? Like I've always had this really um, – like my my big thing is children, right? Yep. Like I can't handle seeing a child be harmed or not be cared for, oh, right? Yeah. And I've always been like that, like for whatever reason since I was a little girl. So like fast fashion really bothers me. Mm, you know, yeah. the fact that it may or may not have been made by a child, but it could have been. Mm. Um, and really poor conditions. And it's like I have – we all have this moral compass or this, um, you know, what your soul feels is right, and we have to listen to that, right? Yeah. Whether we're founding companies or – Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think it's just you've got to follow your own compass and not – not you've got to be really true to yourself. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and make sure that the way you – behave is aligned with those things that are really important to you. Right. So what are the, like, is there anything that founders make a mistake with when they they come to you? You said you get a thousand applications a month. 
No, no, no. We get uh, about a, a, a thousand a year from oh, Innovation okay. Bay, yeah. and we get about seven hundred, I think, directly to us. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the first thing you're looking for is that integrity. Would that be fair? Well, to say? I think that's not something that's ever that immediately obvious. But uh-huh. I, I suppose it's if you see a whiff of that, like we would drop it like a hot rock. I just wouldn't continue with the right. investigation. Right. Um, you know, people fudging things. Right. Trying to make it seem like, you know, they've done better than they have. Always, you know, sell things and, you know, put your best forward, foot forward, but don't, don't, don't be dishonest, if yeah. you know what I mean. Don't yeah. lie or exaggerate, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, because transparency is a, initial transparency is, um, it's an indicator that you know, there might be trans. You know that there's more likely to be a transparent relationship going forward, and that's always right. good for, for trust and good relation, a good, healthy, effective working relationship. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think being respectful of an investor and an investor's time. Um, yes. I think that's important. What do you mean? Like what? So, for example, exam- okay. I I had an email today, and mm-hmm. it was someone had sent got their PA to send me their deck. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm not sure that your PA is the best person to be selling this to me. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But also, you know, don't, you know, with a deck, for example, you, I, the first contact with a potential investor, you've got to realise the purpose of that is to hook interest. It's not to get a sale over the line. Right. So be respectful of their time. Understand that, you know, we're looking at sixteen or 1700 a year with, and we've only got a small team. Right. So what, the first thing we want is to, I want an idea of what you're doing and why mm-hmm. and how that's helping. Mm-hmm. And then if I'm interested, I want to read more and find out more. Mm-hmm. So don't bury it in technicality. Always have your sort of your, your sort of short teaser that gives that really basic information that people can get an idea of whether or not it interests them enough to want to find out more, mm. and whether or not it it will it's likely to fit their investment criteria. And don't assume things like you know. And this particular email said, "Oh, I'm you know I'm the PA and I'm sending you the deck and just." Uh, want to, you know, arrange this, um, the pitch meeting. (laughs) I might want to have a look and see whether I want to spend the time on a pitch meeting first. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So don't assume that you know the way people operate. So look, I I suppose my tips with the, Mm. with the, I think with, with women founders are just be true to yourself and recruit a bit of a fan club, you know, people that you know you can rely on to support you because it's a really tough journey being an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's a rotten roller coaster at times. The yeah. highs are so high and the lows can be just a big bucket of tears. Yeah. And you need someone, like I'm lucky I've got my husband. I have had plenty of times of tears. I have a little weep yeah. and then I brush my knees off and I'll get going again and I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, really annoys me the word resilience because people, it's sort of as if it's, you've got to be the tough guy all the time. I think that's a lot of rubbish. It's more about Mm -hmm. how you manage. You've got to keep going. Right. You know, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. Yes. You're allowed to have a, you're allowed to have a little brush the tears away. No worries. Yeah. But you've just got to keep going and don't give up. That's really important. Right. Um, Both personally and professionally. You've got to keep going. You've Mm. just got to keep going because you know what? These overnight successes of a few years are rare. Most of them take a decade. That's why a venture capital fund, the life of venture capital funds, about ten to, you know, ten to thirteen years. Yeah, it takes. Yeah, it's it's a long, hard, rocky road. I yeah. can't remember who said it, but there's a great quote that said, "We were an overnight success three years in the making." <laughs> I think it was ten years in the making. Oh, was it ten yeah, years? Yeah, I don't think it was three because I think three would be an overnight success. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but yes, exactly. And it's very, it's very, very true. Make sure you've got a support crew. Mm. Look after your people. You know, the things that I'm looking for in investors is almost like a, a bit of reverse advice here. Be aware of what you're not very good at. Yeah. Be really aware of it because they're the first recruits that you, they're the first hires you've got to make. Mm-hmm. Bringing in people that are a hundred times better than you at the things, than the things, than you are at the things that you're not very good at. Yeah. No one or two founders can create a success story they need a whole team to do that and it's about recruiting a caliber people 
Mm. And how do you do that? You know, you've got to inspire them with your passion. You're going to be my A calibre. People have almost always got the option to earn the big bucks with the big um, tech companies or, yep. or whatever. Yeah. But it's always an attraction for certain people to make a difference and have a piece of equity that they're going to benefit from making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's working out. It's engaging other people with your passion, you know, your team, your strategic partners, your potential investors, all those sorts of things. So they're the, they're, that's one of the things that you look for in a founder is their ability to engage other people with their vision. What is the most unique business or interesting, you know, really took you aback that you've ever been approached by? Oh, one I've just invested in. Oh, really? That <laughs> <laughs> was super exciting. Um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about it, oh, though. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just, oh, this is, oh, I don't think I am allowed to talk, talk about it Could you talk about it in a roundabout way? <laughs> oh, it's like quantum computing in a pocketbook. <laughs> but that's Ooh. about, yeah, I know, it's so exciting. <laughs> Intriguing. I know. Um, one that I can talk about that I was very excited about was um, we invested in um, Speedlancer allowed of these flying cars, which is a future, you know, basically we're investing in the future of mobility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of having, you know, these electric flying cars not spitting out nasty pollution uh-huh. with uh, anti-collision, um, you know, anti-collision software that is uniform across all flying cars so mm. that there are no more accidents, people aren't getting hurt. Yes. People, uh, properties are being damaged and you can utilise not just one horizontal plane but lots of horizontal and vertical planes to get around like the Jetsons, you know. Interesting. Um, Interesting. (laughs) It's a really exciting concept and uh, there are lots of other competing um, and better funded um, startups out there but doing a similar thing but I invested mostly in the founder, um, Matt Pearson, because I just thought of, I think it was about the third one that had approached me and I love the idea, but he was the only one that I thought really was going to have the commercial chops to get it off the ground and be able mm-hmm. to fund it. Gotcha. And he's just blown me away with how just the, the creativity of the way he's being able to attract sponsor, you know, sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, non-diluting funding, substantial non-diluting funding in the ter- by way of sponsorships and huh. people just wanting to associate their brand with huh. something as innovative and exciting as a flying car. And, yeah. you know, and smart enough to invest quite heavily in great designers so the flying car looks amazing. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Right. Anyway, that was kind of exciting. I really liked that one too. That's pretty great. What is that company called? Um, Allowder. Allowder. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it's really awesome. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up to... uh, (laughs) The only thing was just you were asking a a little bit about tips on fundraising. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Just a few little quick tips. So research your... um, potential investors. Try mm-hmm. and get some soft intros. Okay. If you can't get a soft intro, try and at least do enough research that there's a reasonable chance there's a there's a fit with their investment criteria and make that clear in your email if it's a cold email. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do your due diligence on any uh, investor before you sign the term sheet. Remember that most of these investor uh, startup relationships last longer than most marriages. So yeah. <laughs> do your DD, talk to other founders in the portfolio. Yeah, Get up the learning curve, read, read, read. Don't rely on your lawyer to work out what the potential ramifications for terms are going to be down the track. Mm. So read um, Scott Cooper's The Secret Sand- of Sand Hill Road and read Brad Feld and, um, and Jason Mendelssohn's uh, venture deals, understand mm-hmm. the terms and think through how it might affect your your business yep. before you sign a term sheet. Beware inexperienced startup investors because, and just make sure that because sometimes, like I've seen it where a startup investor used property type stage terms, which effectively was going to put a stop to the next round of funding really? because it was going to be at the huh. same value, that agreed to the same valuation in three years' time. <laughs> I was like, uh, maybe not. Um, <laughs> that took a lot of unravelling and uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, just 
luckily that investor was open to listening when I um, kind of suggested that it wasn't going to help him and his investment either. Ah, um, uh, yeah. So he was, that was good, but he might not have been someone that wanted to listen. Mm. Um, don't use capital raises. There's no one can sell a startup to an investor like the founders. They're the ones that have got it in their blood. They're the ones that are passionate about it. They're the ones that understand it. So yeah. don't fob it off to your PA or your intern yeah. or pay a capital raiser to do it. Yeah. You have to do it. You've got to bite the bullet and do it yourself because yeah. um, after all, we're investing in you as the founder. Right. Um, and the, uh, the the final one is the valuation. So don't the, the, the no-brainer is don't give away too much equity too early. Mm. Be careful about giving, you know, by all means, using equity sensibly to incentivise key employees and recruits. But just make sure that you're not spending that equity on anyone that's not going to have a really deep impact. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to have key positions and they have to be really, really A calibre, really Mm. good people. Yeah. Um, So be careful about it. Um, And don't, as I said, don't give away too much equity too early. But on the other hand, be very aware of what I call the valuation coffin. You know, some people are very charismatic and they can sell their business brilliantly mm. and they'll sell to a bunch of angel investors or family offices or whatever or people that generally are maybe not that experienced in, in really early stage investing at an overvaluation. And the problem with that is that you then have to, the next round would typically be, you know, 12 or 18 months later at about double the valuation. But mm. if that will give you 12 to 18 months to double your valuation, except that if you've overvalued it, you've actually got to show, demonstrate a whole lot more progress in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Right, yeah. And that can um, introduce much more risk into the whole business for, for you as a founder Yeah. Um, than I think is, you know, you just need to be very aware of it and and it's really exciting and it's quite a good ego, you know, it's a great ego stroke when someone agrees to, you know, invest in your pre-revenue uh, startup for $5 million. But yeah. if it's really only worth two um, and your next, you've invested at, f- that someone's invested at five, then the next has got to be about $10 million, which yeah. means you've got to reach about, if it's a SaaS business, you know, your ballpark store at starting point by, might be a million revenue in a year. Mm-hmm. A year. So are you going to get from zero to a million revenue a year in 12 to 18 months? That's a pretty tall order. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Great advice. That's, <laughs> I'm like, okay. I'm sure people are making notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was beautiful. Well, wow. It is, I wish we could talk for the rest of the day. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> you probably have things to do. Um, thank you so, so much for coming on. It yeah. is always a joy to talk to you. Oh, I was absolutely delighted. Really an delighted. Guest. And uh, <laughs> just, yeah, want to support all those wonderful women entrepreneurs out there and just remind yourself that you guys are the ones that have the better stats for the investors. You do better. <laughs> you produce great returns for investors. They just need to know that. Yeah. Go us. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll chat soon. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by invoice to go We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere, at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.